Hey, hey, it's the Productize Podcast. My name is Brian Castle. Thank you for listening today. Today I'm talking to Meryl Johnston, all the way from the Gold Coast of Australia. She was kind enough to make the time early in her morning and late in my afternoon here in the US. Um, so Meryl runs a very successful productized service called Bean Ninjas, and they handle bookkeeping for a variety of clients, not only in Australia, but they've expanded to the US, Canada, the UK, and New Zealand. And uh, they've been at it for, for two years now and going strong and growing pretty steadily. And we talked all about the early days and how she launched it, you know, kind of following the seven day startup method from Dan Norris and kind of moving on from there, getting early traction, using content marketing to grow, using word of mouth, Facebook groups, tweaking the pricing, tweaking the sales process. And then we dug into uh, management and growing the team and working with salespeople and team members from across different countries and different time zones, the systems and tools that they use, the software that they use, choosing to focus and saying no to certain client requests, dealing with uh, really tricky client onboarding situations and optimizing the onboarding process. We really covered all the, all the nitty gritty in this episode. And that's what I love to do, especially when I'm talking to fellow productized service founders. And so this was uh, really insightful. Again, we, we dug into the details. And so there's a lot of um, useful nuggets that I think you can take away from this episode. So here we go. Here's my conversation with Meryl Johnston from Bean Ninjas. Enjoy. Okay. I'm here talking to Meryl Johnston. Meryl, thanks for taking the time. Welcome. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Brian. And thank you very much for, for making it so early in the morning. I know it's kind of the crack of dawn for you out there in, in Australia on the Gold Coast. And I'm, I'm here in America. It is. It's still dark outside at the moment. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I'm sure the, the weather by you is, is much nicer than it is in these parts. So yeah, we're going to talk about Bean Ninjas. Your, uh, I guess it's kind of a, an accounting, bookkeeping, productized service. We're going to get into all of that and get a bit of your backstory and how you started it, how you've grown it, and how you've systemized it and scaled it up. Um, pretty exciting story here. But you know, before we get into all that, what does your current day to day or your current week look like today? Like, what are you focused on? So this week, I've actually been focused on working with one of our team members to look at the way that she's doing the bookkeeping and to try and help to automate some of the things that we're doing and make her portfolio more profitable. So that's actually been taking up quite a bit of time this week. And then I do a lot of check-in calls with the team just to see. So a lot of my week is revolves around that. So we've got a team of 10. We have a couple of managers within the team, but quite a few people still report to me. So a lot of it is around mentoring the team, helping them set their goals for the week helping remove any roadblocks if they come up and then checking in to see how they went with what they intended to achieve. Awesome. How do you explain Bean Ninjas? How do you talk about it? What is it? So it's a fixed fee bookkeeping service for online businesses. So, and then often a lot of people won't be aware of the difference between bookkeeping and accounting. And so then I'll go on to explain that an accountant is usually the person that would file taxes and help with business structuring and provide more technical advice. And a bookkeeper is responsible for making sure that all of the transactions that happen day-to-day within business get accurately recorded in the right places with the right tax treatment in terms of sales tax, not income tax, so that 
you have good information to make decisions and the accountant can use that information to provide advice and prepare taxes. Got it. Yeah. So I definitely explained it wrong in the intro there. Uh, you, you guys focus on the bookkeeping piece and not accounting. We do. And it is confusing because I am an accountant. So I'm a chartered accountant, which is a bit like a CPA in the US. And a lot of our team are actually accountants as well. So it is confusing. And I used to actually do accounting work in a previous consulting business. But then we decided to niche down and just focus on one element of that, which was bookkeeping. So it is confusing, but often it leads into an interesting conversation with people about what the difference is. Yeah. And so, as I said, you're based in Australia. One thing I like about looking at at your site right now, right across the top, it says bookkeeping for online businesses in Australia, the US, Canada, UK, and New Zealand. And I would certainly imagine coming to that question. I think I I was looking at your site maybe a year or so ago, um, maybe two years ago when I was actually looking for a bookkeeper. And I, I knew you guys were in Australia, but I had the question in my mind is like, does it matter that they're in Australia and I'm in the US? Like, do I need a US based bookkeeper or or not. And I know that you guys focus on zero and I use zero as well. So how do you speak to that question of like, does it matter which country your clients are based in? I think it does to a certain extent. So we actually hire local staff. So in the US, we have a US-based team and then the same in the UK, we've got a guy who's based in Manchester and with Australia, we don't have anyone based in New Zealand, but a lot of Australians have either spent time in New Zealand or are from New Zealand. So we've got staff that knowledgeable about how things work in New Zealand too. So there is definitely some local knowledge required depending on what country you're operating in. And so we've solved that problem just by having local staff that have that local knowledge. And then also being in the same time zone, I think is important too, because if you send an email and you just want a quick question or quick reply about something, if you were talking to someone, if you're based in the US and your bookkeeper's in Australia, it might take quite a while. You're not going to get a quick reply. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's something we're aware of too. So some of our US clients are supported, they're managed, their relationship is managed from the US, but the the US account manager might have someone in Australia helping, but they would manage the relationship and make sure that everything was running smoothly for the client and then also have the knowledge of sales tax or whatever else it might they might need to be aware of operating in the US. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I definitely want to ask you more about that, you know, maybe later on when we dig into kind of the operations and stuff. Because like in, in my team with Audience Ops, I actually make a point of keeping all the writers and all the managers I only hire in the US for that role to keep everybody on the same time zone. And, and we're working with clients primarily in the US, but some are in Europe. A few, actually, we have a couple in, in Australia now. But yeah, I mean, how you deal with these different time zones and countries, and that, that'll be interesting. Um, before we step back and, and go back in the story, can you give us any sort of perspective today on like how big Bean Ninjas has grown, whether it's revenue or clients or team size or whatever you're comfortable sharing? Yeah, so we've been going for almost two years now. So we launched on the 1st of July, 2015. So it's just shy of two years. Our monthly recurring revenue is just over 26000 And we have a team of 10, but with that team of 10, there's only three that would be full-time and then the rest would be casual or contractors. And so they're usually doing between 10 and 20 hours a week. Very nice. And so we're recording this in uh, May of 2017. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty uh, pretty awesome growth for the first two years of, of this productized service business. Very cool. 
Yeah, it is. And it's interesting because the first six months was it were very slow to get started. And then we had a high growth period for a year after that. And then the last six months, I've been focusing on systems and profitability rather than growth. So we again, it's been a slower growth period. So it's yeah, it's quite interesting to look at the growth curve. Nice. So yeah, let's let's go back in the story. Like what were you doing, you know, way before Bean Ninjas? How did you get started? So, well, years ago, when I was studying to be an accountant at university, I actually, my first business was a tennis coaching business. I just wanted to run a business. And that was the only skill I had that I could sell. Did you say ten- tennis coaching? Yeah, I used to be a tennis coach. Oh, very cool. I'm like just trying to like shake off the dust and get into tennis, but I'm terrible and I don't have any time for it. Yeah, <laughs> It's a time-consuming sport. It takes years to, yeah, to learn all of the technique and get better at it. So yeah, I used to play a lot of tennis and then that was the skill. I was interested in business from when I was a little kid and that was the first business that I could think of uh, with the skill that I could sell. Then I finished my degree and went and got a job at a large accounting firm and spent my three years to become a chartered accountant and worked long hours, weekends during that period. Actually, stop you there. So you, from an early age, you were thinking about entrepreneurship and, and growing a business, and then you went to study to be an accountant? <laughs> yes. So it's my, my parents, actually, yeah, yeah. but there's a reason behind that. So my parents actually ran a business together. So my mum was an accountant, my dad was an engineer, and they had an engineering business. So a lot of talk at the dinner table was around contracts or issues that my dad was having with customers. And so I learned a lot just from hearing their conversations and the way that he was running things in his business. And I was always really interested in it. Then when I finished high school, I had a, a year off between high school and university, had a little crack at being a professional tennis player, which did not last very long at all. And then was interested in going into the fitness industry, learned, started to be a personal trainer. And then I realized, actually, I know that I want to run a business. I need to build my business skills. So accounting was my best subject at high school. And that was when I decided, okay, I need to go and learn about business. I'm going to become an accountant. Apparently, you get a really broad understanding of business. And so that's where my career launched. That's why I studied the business degree with a major in accounting. And then it took me many years after that, eight years after that, to actually get back into starting a business. Oh, wow. Interesting. So you actually chose accounting as kind of like the path into eventually starting a business and running a business. I did because as an accountant, you get to see inside the workings of many other businesses. So they share your accounts with you. They share payroll. So I was working in audit initially. So you really need to understand the risks of that business, the industry that they're in. So it was quite interesting to get exposed to all of these different businesses. And also as a junior accountant, you're having conversations as an auditor with quite high level people. You'll have conversations with head of marketing or their head of HR to, to understand the risks in that business. So I learned a lot. That's really smart because I feel like the accounting side and like even just basic use of spreadsheets for me, like the, now I've, I've come a long way with it, but, it, but still like I, it, it's like this area of the business where I just feel like such a hack you know, and the accounting and like profit and loss statements and just keeping track of numbers and making projections. Like I never had that accounting training or or background and I never went to business school. And so whenever I started my businesses, whether it was like freelancing or doing software or or productized services, I always was like doing just such a basic version of a, of like an accounting spreadsheet and kind of felt like such a hack there. And so it's it's smart that you kind of went that route and, and have that financial background. 
Yeah, and I think with accounting, it's almost like learning another language. These days, it's much easier with the software that's available. You don't need to understand the theory or the debits and credits for the numbers still to make sense. But 10 years ago, that wasn't available. So there's a lot of theory. And I used to associate it with learning another language. You can be really smart, but unless you put the time into learning it, it's not going to make sense. So with the accounting background, like where did you go from there? Did you work for a company or start working as a solo accountant? How did you go from there? So then, then I moved to the Gold Coast for lifestyle and so that I could surf more. And I got a job at a big company that owned airports and they owned related businesses too, like baggage handling and plane repairs. So it was a big company. And again, I learned a lot. So I was there for a couple of years, almost three years, and progressed fairly quickly, took on a lot more responsibility. And I enjoyed the learning side of it. But then I looked back and thought, well, why am I doing this again? I've moved here for the lifestyle. It's back to late nights again and weekends. And that was when I thought, okay, the whole reason for doing all of this was to build my skills. It's time to start my own thing. And so I was lucky that I'd been able to save over the previous however many years. So I had some money in the bank, which meant that I was able just to resign from that job, go traveling for a little while, and then come back and start a consulting business with zero clients, not a huge professional network because I hadn't been living on the Gold Coast for that long. And I just did a little bit of contracting on the side as an internal accountant also to pay for my living expenses. And that was where I gradually started to grow a consulting business, which I then realized was a difficult business model because I was doing big accounting software implementations, which are project-based. They needed different skill sets for different projects, which made it difficult to build a team. And also the... Right. Well, before we get too far down that path, so you leave the job, you do a bit of contracting, in-house accounting here and there. How did you actually get your first like true clients as a consultant? Mainly through networking. So I just put it out there that I had launched a business I reached out to friends and family and let them know, and it was very broad. So I was doing anything related to accounting, anything related to accounting software. I would go in and help businesses prepare for audits. So it was mainly through friends and family. I actually sometimes would see a job on Seek, so I'd look for a part-time accounting job, and then I would apply to them and say that my business could do it better than the person that they were hiring. So I actually got a job that way where I said, well, instead of paying someone an annual salary, you can pay me and my team half of that. And then we'll have some team members in India that will help. And so you'll get a better result than if you're hiring someone full-time or or actually, sorry, permanent part-time. Yeah. And that's kind of like a, with a productized service, as you probably learned later on, that's kind of a big value proposition across many different types. Like you could hire a single full-time person, or you can hire our team with the sufficient set of processes and all that. Yeah. But I realized it took a lot of work up front for me to automate everything at the client. It could be three months of work for me to automate things to the point that I could delegate it to different team members. So that really limited growth because I had to do all of that work up front. So yeah, I tried that. I went to face-to-face networking groups. So BNI, which I think is in the US as well. I ran free accounting sessions at startup co-working spaces. I actually... Let's pay the uni student to go and door knock with flyers. I mean, I tried everything. Oh, wow. So you, you were truly marketing that consulting service. There, there's a lot of freelancers and consultants out there who only start with the friends and family outreach and then they get some like a, a referral network building out of that, but then they don't go that extra step of actively marketing and going out, whether it's even local groups or any sort of marketing. So you, you were actually building that up as a consulting business at that time. 
And was it just you or, or did you have other people you were working with? So it was just me and then I had an intern, so a uni, uni student who did well so that I was paying him. And then I also had some team members that were helping with particular projects or if I had taken on in-house accounts. So if I was doing monthly accounting for a business, then they were helping to run that. So I had a bookkeeper in Australia and then some team members in India. But honestly, for all of that effort, the friends and family and referrals provided the best clients and I really did not get a lot out of any of the door knocking, the flyers, anything like that. And the me presenting accounting workshops was a very slow burner. So I did eventually get some leads, but it took months for the people that I was presenting to to actually need bookkeeping services or accounting services. How long did you stick with that model of just general consulting, accounting consulting? Well, so I actually still had to keep that business just for cash flow while I started being ninjas. So it's still going now, but I just don't do very much with it. So it probably was less than a year that I realized that it was not the right business model for the lifestyle that I wanted. What was the first kind of step that you took to, I mean, first identify that you needed to make a change and what was the first change that you made that led into being ninjas? Probably a couple of things. So one was that I just felt like I was always working because I was the point of contact for clients. So again, I could get phone calls late at night. Sometimes I needed to be available on the weekend and it was just not, that wasn't the reason that I started this consulting business. I'd started it to create freedom and a lifestyle. So that was part of it. And then I was also working in a co-working space with Dan Norris, who was running WP Curve at the time. And so i was talking with him and, and he was just talking about what he was doing and I saw how he had created a productized service and that was when I saw his growth and his success and, and was chatting with him about what I was doing and realized I really need to make some changes. Very cool. So then what was the first thing that you did after that? So I was in a mastermind with a guy called Ben. So he was another accountant who was based in Australia, but we actually met in the DC, which is mainly has US-based. So we were drawn to each other because we were both accountants in Australia that think a little bit differently to other accountants. So we'd actually been sharing some of these issues that we faced in our businesses too around scaling and, and having a very broad service offering. So over time, as we were masterminding together, we realized, well, maybe we should actually try and solve this problem together. So that was where the concept for Bean Ninjas was launched, or, or that's where we came up with the idea. Okay. So you kind of partnered up with him initially to start it out. Yeah. So like you're both accountants, right? So you're both kind of bringing that expertise to the table, or, or was there something else that made the partnership work, like the, a different specialty on each side? So we've got slightly different accounting backgrounds. So Ben is a tax accountant and can do small business income tax returns, and mine's more systems and audit management accounting. Um, but but actually, that was one of the issues with our partnership is that we our skill set was very similar. So we wanted to work together because we were excited about the fact that we had this similar a similar vision, and that we both were going down the same path. So we thought it made sense to join forces. In hindsight, our skill set was too too similar. And at that early phase. Did you have a clear vision of what Bean Ninjas was going to be or like the focus on bookkeeping and like, or did that change and how did that look? So we didn't really have, we didn't have a clear vision in terms of what the business would look like. We knew that it was just going to be bookkeeping because we wanted to focus just on one service and do that really well and systemize it and package it in a way, or yeah, a productized service. So we were clear about that and we were also 
had a shared vision that we wanted to build the business to scale from the beginning. So we wanted to create systems from the start and make decisions that would always mean that other team members could be delivering the work rather than it being reliant on us or rather than it being reliant on a relationship that we personally had with the client. So we were clear about that, but we didn't really know what the business would look like in a year's time or two years' time. And that probably looks different now. So it was hard to know what it would actually look like. We just followed Dan Norris's seven-day startup method and launched in a week and then just saw where we just hopped on for the ride and saw where it would take us. Okay. So like, was that kind of the first step to truly launching this? You kind of put up like a landing page and put it out there as like something people can buy? Yeah. So so initially we put together our co-founder agreement. I guess being accountants, we had a background in contracts and how we should put that together, although we'd never actually written a co-founder agreement before. So we definitely agreed on that and the terms and what would happen if one of us, if there was an exit or one of us wanted to buy the other one out and a whole lot of other clauses. So we spent quite a bit of time on that. And once we'd agreed on that, then Ben was living in a different city. So he flew to the Gold Coast and we spent the week together. And that's when we put up the landing page designed our logo, worked out what pricing to use. Let me ask you a little bit more about the partnership initially, because I've kind of been in some partnerships here and there that, that kind of fizzled out. And, and since then, I've kind of been a solo founder. So I'm just curious, what did that partnership look like initially? Like, are you able to, and whatever you don't want to talk about, that's fine. Um, but how did you split up like the equity in the business, but also the investment of time and, and whatever else? How did, how did that kind of shake out? So we were each 50-50 partners. And then initially the business wasn't, we were just reinvesting all of the money back in the business. So we weren't really paying ourselves a wage. So we still needed our other businesses to pay for living costs. So everything was always 50-50. And then we had some performance clauses in there that because we didn't even know what our roles would be exactly when we started. So we just said that we would talk with each other to make sure that we were happy with the performance of the other partner, which was probably quite loose. So initially, we both just did everything. So we were both writing blog posts. We were both doing the bookkeeping or training team members. We were both managing different team members. So really, we were just duplicating everything. And it took us quite a while to work out that we probably should actually split areas of responsibility and one of us focus on one area and the other team member or the other business partner focus on the other. So that was took us about six months. And then we realized, well, I really enjoyed sales and marketing and Ben was really good with setting up processes and the and technical accounting. So maybe he should run the operational side and I'd look after sales and marketing and trying to grow the business. We get a lot of listeners to this podcast and people who are interested in productized services who take their current consulting business and kind of transform it into a productized service. In terms of like the client base, like did you have any clients that you had previously worked with as a consultant who were then moved into Bean Ninjas or was Bean Ninjas like a completely new thing for new clients? So we did have some. So I had some of my smaller clients. So it was interesting. I used to do a lot more expensive consulting so with bigger clients usually. So they wouldn't fit into Bean Ninjas. But then I also had some smaller clients where it was a really good fit. So they were able to move across. And then there was quite a few of Ben's tax clients too that were able to, who he was already doing bookkeeping for. So he just split the agreement and the bookkeeping came into Bean Ninjas. And that's not something that we did right at the beginning because we weren't sure how Bean Ninjas was going to go. So we didn't want to damage any of the relationships with our existing clients. So that actually took us, we, gave that some clients we rolled in in this 
first couple of months, but others we waited for six months just to make sure that that it was running, that it was actually going to continue and wouldn't damage the relationship. You know, I've heard that question a couple times. Like, how did you, how do you present that to those existing clients who've been with you for maybe months or years as a consultant? How do you present this new productized offering? Like, is is it even much of a change for them or is it a lower price, a higher price? And how do you kind of ease them into that change? We tried to keep the price the same. So in Ben's case, because it was, he brought more clients across, there was a total fee that they were paying for their tax and their bookkeeping. So we just worked out, well, what Ben Inge's bookkeeping package would they fit in? Does that leave enough for what Ben would typically charge for tax services? And if it doesn't, then we'd just do a, a special Ben Inge's rate for their bookkeeping, just, just so that we could start to build our client base and build that brand. So we tried from the client point of view, we wanted it to feel like there was no change. So they're still paying the same amount and they're still getting very similar services. And if it was a service that Beanages didn't offer, then we would have to continue offering it in our other business. Okay. So you kind of get the landing page all set up and launched. You're doing the seven day startup thing, you know, from Dan. How did that go? Like what was the very first kind of marketing win around the launch? Like when did you start getting the very first customers that were new, not previous consulting customers? So we were actually lucky enough to get our first customer, new customer that week, and that was through a Facebook group. So we just were sharing all about our journey. So talking about the fact that we launched, here's our logo, now we've got our page up. So that was in the seven-day startup Facebook group. And so I think there was already a community there of people that were doing similar things or wanted to and wanted to get behind us. So that's where our first customer came from. And Subsequent customers from that, again, came from Facebook groups. So just us being active in the groups, talking about what we were doing, being really helpful if anyone had bookkeeping or accounting questions. And early on, was it only Australia that you were focused on? It was, yeah. So we didn't launch into the US until we'd, well, it was probably maybe three or four months in, and then we started getting referrals. And then there was enough people that wanted the US service that we thought, okay, we should launch in the US as well. And Ben had US tax knowledge. So it didn't feel like too much of a jump for us to move into the US. So you're doing Facebook groups. Anything else that happened in those first few months to gain early traction, get get a few first customers in the door? And then that was just networking through. So that was, again, us reaching out to friends and family and me going a lot of, to a lot of face-to-face networking, which I don't really enjoy. And now I don't do a lot of it. But at the time, I was just wanting to test anything. And early on, were you guys doing the work, doing the, the bookkeeping work for clients? We were. And, and that was demoralizing too, because our accounting or consulting rates are much higher than what we would charge for bookkeeping or what you can chat what the market rate is. So I know. <laughs> you know, that's funny. I, I remember that feeling so much in Restaurant Engine. I mean, for mo- most of the time I was in Restaurant Engine, I had been doing website work for like thousands of dollars for clients. And then I'm doing, I mean, it was more systemized, but essentially the same thing for like $49 a month. And I'm like, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we we definitely had that moment many times in the business where if we were doing consulting and we'd scope the project as a consultant, we'd definitely be getting paid more. And then we had to just keep coming back to, well, that's our vision. And it's for us not to be actually doing this work ourselves, but we need to do it now until we build the systems. So that was definitely a challenge. Not so much of a challenge now because the business can pay me a wage as one one founder, as well as the team. But in the early days, especially when it wasn't paying us anything, that was, and we were doing bookkeeping work, that was quite frustrating. Yeah. How long did you go before you hired the first person beyond just you and Ben? 
So it was at the five-month mark, and then we actually hired three people. So because we didn't want to go straight in. Again, we're so there's so much testing and learning to do, so we didn't want to just hire someone full-time because we didn't even know exactly what skill set that person should have. So we hired three bookkeepers or, or two bookkeepers and one accountant. So that was when we hired the U.S. accountant too, and they were all casual. So we could kind of test things out, see how it went, and see whether we had the right systems, but we weren't having to commit to a full-time salary. And in Australia, it's difficult. If you hire someone full-time as well and it doesn't work out, it's quite a lengthy process to unwind that. So we didn't want to take that risk initially. And how did you go about finding your first people to hire? So we put job ads out and also, again, in the groups and on LinkedIn. And it turned out one of the first hires I'd previously worked with an accounting firm. So we actually already knew each other and I felt quite confident hiring her. The US team member was recommended to us through one of Ben's contacts from an old mastermind. And then the third bookkeeper just came through job board in Australia. Well, correct me if I'm wrong. Are you only focused on using Zero, the software for, for accounting? Or We are. And so again, we've had a lot of conversations about that in the beginning because we wanted to be fully systemized. And as soon as you start using different accounting software, then we would need to have different processes with the way we, that we were completing the work. But initially, and especially in the US, because QuickBooks is quite big in the US, we had a lot of clients, a lot of leads who came in who wanted to use QuickBooks. And so we had to be quite strong at the very beginning to say no to these customers so that we could stay true to systemizing just using zero. So and I'm glad that we did that because I feel like zero is growing really quickly. So we did consider using QuickBooks as well when we first began the business and we tested both. And at the time, we thought zero was better for the type of clients that we wanted to work with. But it is still it's hard saying no to customers. It really is. And, and I've gone a, a bit back and forth on this in audience ops. Like there are two things like first, like for your blog, most like 90% plus use WordPress, but then some people use Squarespace and then a few people have like some custom CMS or whatever. And for a while, we just kind of turned away people who did not use WordPress. But now we're a little, what I did there was we made processes for like the two or three most popular platforms so that we can handle those. And the same thing with email marketing. Most of our clients use Drip. A chunk of them use MailChimp. And then we can kind of work with ActiveCampaign or ConvertKit or Infusionsoft. And so we've made procedures for those popular ones so that we can handle them. But custom stuff or really obscure tools, we we either turn them away or we find some up, some way to work with them where we're just delivering what we normally do except for that piece. Uh, but in your case, I could definitely see how focusing on one platform, I mean, I could even see that being a benefit because when I was searching for my current bookkeeper about two years ago, I knew that I was planning on using zero. So I sought out a zero specialist. Yes. And I think it does help us too, because now we're involved in the zero community and we get quite a lot of opportunities just with relationships with zero too. But just on the, I just wanted to add to what you were saying around the saying no to customers and fluctuating back and forth. And, and we've been in that position, not so much, we were firm with what we wanted with accounting software, but just other extra bookkeeping services. So things like someone would want payroll or someone would want us to handle their bills. And when we were going through a growth stage, we just wanted to bring in more clients and increase cash flow so that we could hire more staff. And that was actually where now I consider them mistakes. We took on clients that we needed to a lot, of, a lot of custom work up front so that we could work together. 
which took Ben and I away from focusing on other things. And then often they turned out not to be the ideal client anyway, and we weren't able to meet their expectations because of the type of service that we deliver. So we would have been far better just identifying that in the scoping process and then helping them find someone else who could deliver on exactly what they wanted, which is different to what the service we offer. Right, right. So yeah, like what else happened during the first, you know, six months or so, six to eight months? What were kind of the hard lessons learned during that period? So we learned lots of lessons. One of the things we found most difficult was how much to charge. So we wanted to have three packages on our website. So how much to charge and what to include. And so we just continue to learn by talking to lots of different customers and leads and and other people in the industry about what how to price those. And we started off pricing ourselves very low, which was a hard lesson. So we thought, oh, WP Curve, it's $99 a month. We need to do bookkeeping for $99 a month, which isn't really possible to actually make a profit on that because there's some things that you have to do no matter how big or small the client is. So we found pricing quite difficult and working out what to include in the packages where we could still make a profit. Growth was hard. The first six months, our monthly recurring revenue was only three and a half thousand after six months. So our goal was that someone would see the Beninja's website and then they'd just click sign up on the package that they wanted and then off we'd go. But we realized that bookkeeping is you're sharing your financial information with the bookkeeper and that takes a much higher degree of trust than some other kinds of services. So that was another lesson that we weren't learned that our sales process was going to be longer and we needed to invest a lot more time into building trust up front. And again, so that's when we started to go down the content creation path and realize also that referrals from existing clients are probably going to be our big sources of leads because that already increases the level of trust with a potential customer. So I definitely want to dig into the sales process and your content marketing and all that. But I want to stick on pricing for a second. I think it's interesting how you price your services. And I've seen a few different variations on this between different bookkeeping services. It looks like you're, at at least at the time of this recording, your tiers are based on transaction limits, like the number of transactions per month, which I, I actually think makes a lot of sense. Because I've seen some services that are like based on monthly revenue or the total amount of your expenses every month. And I always felt like that way can put me into the wrong tier, right? Like based on like the amount of actual activity that's going on. Yes. And so we've tested different variations of this. So we tried revenue for a small period, but then we had feedback that, well, hang on, my bookkeeping is really simple. I just happen to have high turnover. So why am I getting charged for higher fees? And, and that seemed to put put people off when we charge based on revenue. And at the time, I tried to explain it that a business can still be complex, even if there is a small number of transactions. But that just seemed, it was a harder conversation to have. Whereas transaction volume often that really also is a driver of how much work we need to do. And that's much more simple to explain. So yeah, we use transaction volume. And then we also use the number of accounts or zero add-ons because that adds a layer of complexity too. So if a business is operating out of four different currencies in PayPal and they have some different zero add-ons that are connected and integrated that are feeding data in, then that can make the bookkeeping more complex too. So we use a combination of, that's how we take into account complexity and then also transaction volumes. That totally makes sense. Like, how do you think about profitability and managing your costs? I mean, I'm sure that the main cost driver is, of course, people. And so like, how do you think about that? And like, how do you kind of break that down? 
So we track, and this might be me being an accountant as well. So each of our time members keep timesheets, which is very common in the accounting industry. So I think if you have staff who aren't used to keeping timesheets, then where they have to split their hours onto the client and the activity that they were doing, this would be more difficult. So we track profitability by client each month. We can do that because the staff are all recording their time. And that information We could use it to manage staff performance, but most of it is just information and learning for us around how long certain things take, how much certain things cost, and we've used that information to improve our pricing. But sometimes it identifies really unprofitable clients, and that's where we know, okay, we need to go and have a conversation about scope with that client and see if something's changed, or we need to look at what we're doing at our end. So we have a a labour cost that we expect. So the first three months of onboarding, we invest a lot of time up front, so we don't expect the bookkeepers to be achieving their budgets. But after three months, then each job would have an expectation of about how long it would take each week or each month. And so we, we track that. So your bookkeepers are charging by the hour and you give them like an expectation of like, if you're working on one client, it should take you some expectation of X number of hours. Yeah. So we, if it's a bookkeeper that doesn't have many clients, then they'd have a rough idea of how long each of their clients should take. If it's one of our full-timers, then it's more that they just have a portfolio of a certain size that they would be expected to deliver in the time frame. So if they work four days a week or five days a week, and so that we can manage margins that way too, just by the revenue base that they are looking after. But if it's, yeah, you're right. If it's a contractor, then it's more on the hours because we think that it should take about this long. But we don't, our main priority is delivering a good service. So We've set the expectation with the team. So if you need to spend an extra hour this month to, to, for something that's a little bit extra or just to make things run smoothly, do it. But if it's an extra hour every month, then we need to have a chat about it. So we're not too harsh on, on tracking that or pushing back with the team about when there's an extra hour here or there. How are you paying the team and tracking hours you know, across different countries and, and everything like that? So the team keep timesheets and then I've left it up to them how they want to do that, but quite a few choose to use Harvest where they can just click start and stop whenever they're working on a particular task and then it just creates a report that makes it easy to then prepare the information they need to send with their invoice. So that's if they're contractors. If they're employees, then they use a similar process, but the timesheet gets entered into payroll. So we've got a staff member in the Philippines called Ness who handles admin for us. And so she looks after entering all of that into our own zero through payroll. You know, it's interesting because for me early on, like the first, I don't know, six months or so of audience apps, I was mostly paying our team hourly like that. Um, So writers and project managers and editors, they would each come into audience apps with, you know, some... I mean, they're in the same ballpark in terms of their hourly rate, but they would sometimes be different from one another between like 5 and $10 an hour difference. And so there was that difference, but then there was also like some, some writers just take longer and some work much faster. And so there was that variation as well. And it got to a point where it was tough, like two different writers, they're delivering about the same amount of work, but one is charging like double what the other is charging. And so through the course of like the first six to maybe eight or 10 months, I started to figure out, all right, what is the expectation in terms of 
time spent per article. And then we came out with a kind of a, just a flat per article fee that is agreeable to everyone on the team to kind of flatten that out. And not only articles, but also editing. We came up with a standard flat rate, uh, project management, even though that's like a tiered approach where a manager is managing up to 10 clients, they get X dollars a month, up to 15 clients, they get X dollars a month. Um, and so I've tried to move everything onto that like non-hourly basis expected rate. And I mean, first to just keep everything kind of even across the team, but then of course, to make it much easier to track, you know, costs and profitability. I think that's an awesome idea. Ben and I had been tossing around that idea of could we make that work for us in terms of just paying a fixed fee. And I think because our early clients were on quite cheap pricing, it was difficult to convince a bookkeeper to take the fixed fee that we would would like them to. So, and we haven't actually revisited that. But hearing you talk about that makes me go and think about it again. Where we've got staff on payroll, we can't do that. But I guess in effect, it is a bit like a fixed fee because they're on a fixed salary per week. And then there's an expectation about what they would deliver each week. And I like what you said about the tiers for project managers too, because I've been thinking about how to do that in our business where we've got team leaders who are managing other staff and a portfolio. So that's interesting. Yeah. And also like for a full-time person, we we know like the maximum limit of what a full-timer can, is expected to take on. And I mean, just generally, I everybody that I hire, I try to get into some sort of just agreed flat fee or flat rate, even like podcast editors or video editors. Like, look, I don't care about you tracking your time. Just here's what I expect you to, to, to deliver. And then like, even if they don't offer a productized service, I like to try to get them into some sort of like productized service that I could buy from them, you know? Um so yeah, let's get back into like the marketing and sales process. That that is interesting what you said about like you know people just need to talk to somebody over the phone and just an hour ago I had an, I was interviewing Robert Hartline for this podcast who's kind of a sales expert and he and he's selling a, a SaaS software but he still sells it almost exclusively over the phone and I just feel like not enough online business owners these days are like too many people are trying to avoid talking to customers, whether they're selling a productized service or selling software or whatever. But I think that's a mistake. I think people should seek to just talk to customers even more and just systematize and scale that up. You know, whether it's you, the founders or bringing on salespeople, like how has that worked out for you in terms of like talking to people in the sales process? Yeah, I agree with what you said. I think it's really important to talk with customers and understand what their problems are and then be able to either let them know that we can solve those problems with what Ninjas does, or if it doesn't, also let them know and, and help them find someone else. So I think that initial contact over the phone really does help to build trust. In terms of our process, so I've got a team member in the US actually who handles most of our initial scoping calls, and that's where we'll go. We ask a lot of questions and try and understand where the client what their book frustrations with their bookkeeping are at the moment and also where they want, what they'd like their bookkeeping to look like. So we do something that I'm wanting to work on and improve with that process is we can spend sometimes an hour, an hour and a half on that call and provide a lot of value up front, but then sometimes the lead won't go ahead. So that's actually something I'm working on at the moment is can we make the initial contact a little smaller and then when we're doing this discovery session that's a bit longer and we're giving a lot of value around what we'd recommend with making improvements to bookkeeping, maybe charge for that. But that's not something that we're doing at the moment and I think we need to. In terms of a a system, so initially it was Ben and I both doing the scoping calls and then we developed the process of the type of questions that we usually ask 
the flow of questions and then what the follow-up procedures would be. And, and that's how we trained our team member in, who's based in the US around how we do that process. And that, that took a lot of – he was already quite skilled in the way that he communicated with people. And then we just did a lot of debriefs as well around how the calls went. And that person is an accountant, not like a sales background? Interesting. Yes. So he is an accountant and we wanted, we went back and forth. Do we need someone that has sales skills or do we need someone that's an accountant who can talk about technical things? And we realized for us, it's more about building trust. So we don't need someone that knows how to close a deal or um, knows really about sales. He just needs to be able to talk in a way that builds trust and shows that we know what we're talking about and that we would be good to work with. So our sales process is actually focused on that in terms of building a relationship, but we're not really, I'm not a salesperson and then neither is Wayne and neither was Ben. So, but that was a decision that we thought about and we we decided to go down that path that we did need, need an accountant doing that role. What does kind of like the onboarding process look like? Even before they sign up, like, so they come to your site, what's the call to action? Do they request, they book a time to talk to you or how does the call even get scheduled? So they'll come to the website and then fill out some questions around, so if they'd like to get in touch, which give us more of an idea of their size of business and what their frustrations are, then based on that, we'll either reply back with a call booking link or just ask them some more questions to get a feel for whether we can help before we actually get on the call, because sometimes we can tell from the outset that we're not the right fit. So then the call is booked. And then that's where we go through the scoping process of working out where everything's at, what their frustrations are, how we can help solve it. Then we've got some different email templates, which is a follow-up, which explain next steps, how we can address their concerns, how to get started. And then in that email, we also send a link, which is similar to the what's on our website, just where they can fill out their details and also set up the direct debit for the plan that we've identified that that they fit into. I guess it's similar to my business. Although I've noticed that you do have like the direct sign up on the site. Um, I mean, I do now as well. Like, do you get people who just come and sign up and pay without talking to you? Very rarely. It's happened a couple of times. Uh, but I think we're actually better doing the scoping process because sometimes people won't pick the right plan anyway. So we have it there, but we generally go through that scoping exercise. And it's good for them, like after they've spoken to you, they can just come back to the site and sign up. Yes. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, then what does the onboarding process look like from there? Like how much work is involved and how do you like optimize those first few weeks? Because that's something that we've spent a ton of time on, you know, and I've seen how critical it is to, to make the first like three or four weeks, just a really seamless, good experience for the client to really set it up for a long term. Like how do you treat the first few weeks? So onboarding is critical for us too. And often we're sorting out a mess too. So either someone's had trouble with their previous bookkeeper or they've been doing it themselves a lot of the time. And so there's quite a lot of work up front to work out how things should be running. And then also there can be many months of catch-up and sometimes years of catch-up work to do. So we've learned some hard lessons there where there, there is a huge chunk of work at the beginning and we haven't communicated expectations about that well up front. So now we usually, as part of the scoping process, let everyone know that we start onboarding in the third or the fourth week of every month because our first two weeks after the end of the month are really busy just with our regular work. 
So that helps to buy us a little bit more time where we can actually focus on onboarding during that time period. Because I think the customer's expectation is they signed up today and they want to start tomorrow. And that's just not possible when we already have work scheduled. But in the past, we haven't communicated that. And then we've had yeah unhappy clients. So we talk about what date we're going to start. And then we also let them know that it could take four weeks or six weeks if there's years of catch-up work to do for us to get to the point that it's running smoothly. So we'll have a call. The week that we're starting the onboarding, we'll have a call just to go through any bits of extra information that we'll need and also just to answer any questions from the client. Then Wayne will usually, he does the onboarding himself or there's one team member. So Wayne's the guy that does the sales calls. So he then does the first couple of months of bookkeeping himself just to make sure that everything's running smoothly or there's one other team member that helps him with that. So he'll focus on that and he's quite a high-skilled accountant and the same with the other team member that helps him. So they're a lot more than bookkeepers so they can solve all of the initial problems and get it running smoothly and then at that point it's ready to go off to another team member and then they will have created so we have checklists of what we need to do for say weekly bookkeeping but often that needs to be a bit customized for each client so they'll make sure all of the documentation set up so there's notes about that particular client there's checklists we know what the deliverables are and then that can get moved on to another team member very nice so what does your entire team look like right now like in terms of like how many people but also like what are the different roles so there's 10 of us There's the international team, which Wayne, who manages the sales. When I say international, that's the US, Canada, and UK. And then in Australia, I'm acting as the operations manager at the moment, but I'd like to fill that role. And so then we have two full-time bookkeepers and then a couple of casuals who report in to me. So I'm managing, making sure that the deadlines are being met and solving any technical issues. And then we've got our staff member, who is based in the Philippines, who helps with admin and then ad hoc bookkeeping tasks. The team can use her as a resource as well. So that's how the team looks. Who communicates with clients? Like are the bookkeepers themselves just going direct to the client or does the manager, like the person in in charge in the US and like you in, in Australia, kind of relaying between the bookkeeper and the client? So the bookkeepers are going directly to the client. But if it's a new bookkeeper, so if it's a new staff member, then they'll be shadowing someone else. So they wouldn't have any communication with the client initially and maybe not for the first couple of months. And then their emails all get, would get checked for the first couple of months just to make sure that everything's in the, the way that we communicate with our clients and everything's right. But then once we're satisfied that team members understands what we're about, the technical skills are up to scratch, then we then they're fine to go directly to the client and we encourage them to build a relationship with the clients that they're working with because the idea is that they'll be doing their bookkeeping for many years. So it's good to say, you know, what they got up to on the weekend or whatever else. And so some of our bookkeepers have built quite strong relationships with the clients that they're working on. Yeah, very cool. So how do you keep track of that stuff like from week to week to just keep in touch with like how clients are doing or how relationships are going, you know, because you, you've delegated all that communication and all that work. So and I know firsthand how easy it is to feel disconnected from the day to day. Like how do you get check ins or issues escalated to you? How do, how do you see that stuff going on? So a couple of things. So I schedule check in calls. So I will. So with the Australian clients, I'll try and have a check in call every three to six months, depending on how everything's going. Then we use Help Scout as our form of communication. So 
all emails from clients are coming into our support at Beaninger's email address. And so I can keep an eye on what's going on there. And I'll often get tagged in emails too. So if there's anything to do with a relationship, so if a client's unhappy or if the bookkeeper feels like something might be outside of the scope, then I'll come in and manage any of – so I'll help the team answer those questions. Or if they know it's something I need to talk with the client about, then they'll just send my booking link out. And so I'll, I'll have the difficult conversations, but the day-to-day – I can just keep an eye on what's going on in Help Scout, and I just now I've built up a lot of trust with the team that they can communicate effectively with clients. And then in terms of making sure that they're meeting their deliverables, we just have a we just call it a, the job status tracking sheet. And so in the checking calls that I'm doing every week, we just keep an eye on where every deliverable for each job is at, and just making sure that they're all getting ticked off. So that's how I feel confident that that's happening within my team and then Wayne's doing that in the US and then I do a, a call with him just to make sure that everything's being delivered for his team too. Yeah, we love Help Scout as well. We use it in the same way that you use it with keeping email very transparent across the team, but allowing multiple team members to, to operate it. Private notes in Help Scout are super helpful for us. As long as you don't send them send an email by accident when you think it's a note, we've done that before. Oh yeah, yep. So we and we also like send each other Help Scout links all the time, like in Trello cards or in Slack, or that's really good to have. So, what other tools are, are you guys using to kind of manage operations? So, some of the tools that you just mentioned, actually. So, we use Slack to manage the internal team communication, and we're just testing that with clients too, because a lot of our clients actually use it as well and would like to communicate with us. I haven't worked out how to manage expectations there in terms of the team not being available 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I I would definitely think twice before letting clients into the Slack channel, (laughs) just for us. So yeah, 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 we're testing it with a few at the moment. Definitely haven't rolled it out until I've solved that problem. Uh, We use Trello too for managing so each bookkeeper has their own board in Trello and then I use it for things like content, tracking leads, other operational things, HR. So we just have different boards for that. We use Google Docs to keep track of all of our systems. We were using Jing to do screen recordings, but we've just started using Useloom, which is great for creating little videos. So L-O-O-M, it's a Chrome extension. Oh, interesting. I got to check that out. I'm, I'm always looking for video tools because I feel like there aren't any good ones. And one that I've been using recently is called View Edit, which is pretty good. It, it's really quick at, at recording a video and then sending somebody the link like really quickly. But the one challenge with it is that I can't download videos that I've recorded. Right. I think that might be similar with this system because it's so fast. Just to, you click a button and then you've recorded it. You've got the link and then you can choose whether someone can see you or not. So I actually use it for team videos too, if I'm giving them an update on performance for the month or something like that. So they can actually see me because I don't see many of them in person very often. Um, So yeah, I mean, before we just wrap up here, I did want to touch back on marketing and content. I know that you guys do that quite a bit. Like how are you doing handling like content marketing and just driving leads in general today? So with content, initially I was doing all of the content and I I didn't even feel like I was a great writer to start with, but I put a lot of time into trying to improve my writing and learn how to do it. And once I felt happier that my skills had improved, I then trained it or created a process and now have team members that help with that, contractors. So we come up with the content calendar. We plan out the topics a couple of months in advance and then the writers put together the article and then either format it as well with our guidelines or I've got 
another contractor that can help format it if it's a guest post or, or, or someone else doing that. So I think our content, the creation is, happens regularly into a schedule. So we have that being, there's blog posts available on a weekly basis that have been prepared in advance. Our content promotion probably isn't the greatest. We just schedule it out through social media, but we probably need to improve there. And have you found that, that it helps like grow traffic and people find you that way? It, it does. So I think for us, content's been more of a long-term strategy. So we didn't get leads from content for the first six months, but it's more that now if someone's, they've heard of us through a friend, they've read a, a blog post that we've written or they've read a guest post we've done somewhere else, they might have heard a podcast interview, all of that helps to build trust. So sometimes it's not for us, someone will just read one blog post and then that's it, they're, they're sold on being ninjas. But just over time, just hearing about us through all these different methods and then maybe they don't know how to connect Stripe with Zero, and then they read our how-to guide on that. And so I think over time it all just builds a brand and builds trust. But it, I don't think I've ever been on a scoping call where someone said, I read an article of yours and just had to set up a call with you straight away. But often – on the screen call, they will have or they will have read some of our blog posts, but they've also heard of us through other sources. Yeah, very cool. I, I see that you do a lot of a uh, customer case study piece as well, which looks looks really good. Yeah, they've been interesting. So we actually have had quite a few leads come through those those channels when we've written the customer case study and then our customers shared it with their audience, and then their audiences felt like, oh, my friend uses you for bookkeeping. Okay, if they they must trust you. They, you must be doing a good job for them if they were happy to be on the case study. Okay, I'm going to get in contact. So that's actually been that, – that's worked well, for, surprisingly well. I wasn't actually expecting that. Yeah, that's very cool. We, we've done a bit of that ourselves and we've done it for clients before and, and I want to do more of it. I have like a short series that we did like a year ago and we definitely need to start doing more of that. Very cool. Uh, well, yeah, Meryl, we, we definitely went longer than I expected. Thank you for taking the time. This has been really insightful and thanks for digging into all the details. But, you know, when you're running a productized service, all the little details really, really matter. And it's just really impressive what you've been able to build with Bean Ninjas. And at the same time, I'm sure it's kind of just getting started. So uh, really excited to keep tabs on, on what you're doing over there. Yeah, thanks so much, Brian. I really enjoyed it. Uh, cool. So that's at uh, beanninjas.com. Is that like where else can people kind of connect with you? That's the best place. So beanninjas.com and then Twitter, I'm Meryl Johnston. Awesome. Well, thanks, Meryl. Great. Thanks, Brian. Hey, before you go, did you know that in my newsletter list, there's a select group of folks who receive what I call my Friday notes emails. That's where I share some behind the scenes updates about the businesses that I'm working on in real time, some personal updates and some tips. They're kind of a change of pace from the other stuff that I usually send out. And so my longtime subscribers really enjoy these, these emails. And I get a lot of feedback on them. Um, but if you're not getting them yet, you can actually get my next one by going to castjam.com slash Friday notes. That's Friday dash notes. I'll connect with you soon. Thanks for tuning in today. Thanks for tuning in today.